Thanks, TJ. It's great to have, have TJ back with us this morning. Uh, just so you know, uh, Donnie Cox had a busy few days. Uh, his wife gave birth to a son last night. Yeah, we're pretty excited about that. After, um, after 20-some hours of labor, which is really hard on Donnie. I'm just... <laughs> feel so bad for him. Anyway, we're excited about that. New member of the family. Uh, I'm glad you guys are all here with us today. I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, the Gospel of John, New Testament, John chapter 14. Uh, if you're a guest with us, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Present. And in it, we're exploring uh, what we can do to prepare ourselves for the oncoming holidays. Why are we doing that? We're doing it primarily because earlier this year, Time Magazine published an article titled, Americans Are Getting More Stressed Out. And the article shared the results of a recent study done by the American Psychological Association, which which found that stress levels in the U.S. are on the rise, significantly so, uh, with a high high percentage of uh, Americans saying that they experience extreme anxiety during the holidays. In fact, 45% of Americans say they'd prefer to skip Christmas altogether because of it. And that is just so, so tragic, so unfortunate. Uh, and so we're, we're considering together how we might counteract that holiday anxiety. And rather than uh, succumbing to the usual stress of the season, to figure out you know, uh, how we can experience a greater sense of peace in our lives instead of rushing through and missing the joy of it all to, to rest, you know, to be truly present uh, in the moment for our families and for our friends, and even in the moment for God to do something in our own lives and through, through us as his people. And while we admit there, there is no simple recipe, uh, we are offering a few ideas that I think, I think might be helpful. And this morning I want to focus um, specifically on the idea of peace, <clears throat> which ironically is a major theme of Christmas, yet uh, something a lot of people apparently fail to experience um, while I was processing that cultural reality over the last few weeks, I couldn't help but think of something that Jesus said just prior to his arrest. You remember what he said to his friends? He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And the term Jesus used for peace reflects the, the Hebrew concept of shalom, which for Jewish people um, was all about a healthy, tranquil quietness of mind and spirit that transcends uh, circumstances and is established and sustained by God himself. Jesus says, this shalom, this peace, my peace, I leave with you. Now that's an amazing statement. Um, And after reading it over and over again and reflecting more on it, I realized how, in a way, it offers a rather comprehensive treatise on the topic of peace and actually reveals a few important things that we we all should probably know. So I want to explore that a little bit more with you, and I want to do it by looking at the second part of the statement um, first, and then then work backwards, and hopefully you'll see why in a few minutes. So to start off, when Jesus brings up this idea of shalom, when he brings up this idea of peace, he essentially tells his followers what? He tells them that uh, the antithesis of peace is fear. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And the Greek term translated troubled here means to stir up, to agitate, means anxiety. And the term for afraid carries the idea of dread, paralyzing, debilitating terror. 
Here's my Ray K summary. Jesus says to his friends, do not be so anxiously fearful. Now what's interesting, at least to me, is that nowhere in Scripture are we ever told by God not to be sad. You realize that? We're never told not to be sad. We are called to be joyful, but sadness is never labeled as being wrong or some kind of a sin. In fact, we're called to rejoice even in our sorrow. The uh, assumption being that we'll experience sadness. It's part of the human experience. Why? Well, because we live in what is at times a sad, broken, painful world. And therefore, sadness is, is never condemned. Um, if it were, Jesus would be condemned. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah referred to the coming of the Messiah, essentially referred to Jesus as a man of sorrow, acquainted with suffering and grief. And Jesus was certainly that, a man of sorrow. But think about it. He was never referred to as a man of fear. He was never referred to as a man of fear acquainted with anxiety. And nowhere in Scripture are we ever called to rejoice in our fears. And obviously, in this particular interaction, Jesus says, do not be troubled and dreadfully afraid. And given the, the context of the statement, the implication seems to be that the peace Jesus offers can be experienced in the midst of sorrow and sadness because it's not antithetical to sorrow, but it is antithetical to fear. Or another way to, another way to think of it is the peace that Jesus gives doesn't eliminate sadness, but it can and will eliminate fearfulness. Side note, don't ever accept the idea, the notion that being a Christian means that not being sad, that you're going to be happy, 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 happy all the time. That's ridiculous. And it certainly wasn't true of Jesus. However, I think it's fair to say that if you are a Christian, then experiencing the peace of Christ means that your fears in life should and will progressively diminish. In fact, let's talk about fear for a couple minutes. Where does fear come from? Where does it, where does it originate? Um, I suppose there are a number of ways to answer that question, but as I see it, a strong arg argument can be made that the origin of fear can be traced back to the dawn of creation, where it first occurs as a result of human rebellion. Uh, early in, the, the early, in the early chapters of Genesis, we're told that in the beginning, man and woman were created. They were created in the image of God. They were created in innocence, and their relationship to their creator was good. It was right. It was healthy. God was a close, intimate, personal friend. They walked together in the cool of the evening. So what was there to be afraid of? It, of? I mean, when, when the creator of the universe is your close, personal friend, what do you need to be afraid of? Nothing, right? Nothing. So there was, there, there was no fear in paradise until the voice of evil slyly suggested that God was holding out on his friends. See, there was something that the creator told man and woman they, they shouldn't do, they shouldn't have fruit, they shouldn't eat, or it would have deadly consequences. Was that really true? I mean, come on, really? And when evil posed that question, it planted a seed of doubt in their minds, and man and woman began to entertain the nefarious possibility that their supposed friend wasn't so honest, wasn't so good. I mean, he was imposing his will on them. He was holding them back. He was infringing on their freedoms, on their individual rights to do what they want, when they want, how they want. He was, he was controlling them. 
And when they fully embraced that misguided, twisted thinking, they sinned. And sin, you know, there's a lot of different ways to define it. Uh, as Christians, we like to point out certain behaviors as that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. But at its very core, think of sin this way. At its very core, it's saying to God, I don't need you. I don't need you. I'll do what I want. I know better than you knew. And the moment we believe that is the moment as human beings we act out in disobedience and we suffer the consequences. Remember what happened next, right? Most of you know the story. Both the man and woman, they lost their, their innocence. Innocence was gone. Suddenly they realized they were naked. They felt ashamed. They felt vulnerable. They felt insecure and defenseless. And so they hid from each other and they attempted to hide from God. And when God called out to them, he said, where are you? Why have you moved away from me? The man said, I hid because I was afraid. So fear was now a reality. You know, it's fascinating that this account in Genesis 3 is a precise analysis of our human condition. It really is. I mean, it reveals the great and evil lie we all tend to buy into, namely, that you and I know better than God. We knew better than the Creator. We don't need Him. Who needs Him? He's a cosmic killjoy, imposing His will on us, limiting our individual rights. He's a control freak. We should be terrified of His brutal oppressiveness. And if we move away from him, we'll be free of that fear. The scripture tells us the opposite is true. That God is altogether good and loving and trustworthy. And when we move away from him, we discover fear, which intensifies the further we wander. Now you realize this ancient lie is propagated quite openly in our culture today, right? Secularism and its proponents criticize religion as being what? Being oppressive. They look at Christianity, for example, they look at Christians and say, you know why you people are afraid of everything? Because you, your legalistic rules and regulations, you got all these hang-ups, your do's and don'ts, your wills and won'ts, come on, man, you believe in God, you must submit to God, wake up, people. You gotta get away from that. You gotta get away from God if you wanna get away from fear. But here's the truth. Here's the reality. That does not work. It does not work. The further you move from God, the more fear you experience. Without God, there's only futility. Without God, there's no, there's no future. There's no purpose. We are just powerless, helpless, hopeless, meaningless, high-functioning, soulless animals. That's it. That's what the famed German philosopher and cultural critic Friedrich Nietzsche was getting at. When he coined the phrase, God is dead, we killed him. And he said, here's, here's, the, here's the repercussions. He says, without God, are we not plunging continually backwards, sideways, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down? Are we not straying as, as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Oh, how shall we comfort ourselves? He says you can't. Without God, there's no, there's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. There's no justice. There's no purpose to our existence. 
There's no hope. And all of that results in paralyzing fear. Therefore, uh, Nietzsche said, what, what modern, our modern world needs is what he called the ubermensch, which translated means the, the overman or the superman or the superperson who, who, uh, who can somehow in some way live every day with this fear, this terror of nothingness. Few people can do that. Well, back to Genesis and Jesus. Here's the point. It's always been true. It's always been true. As human beings, when we move away from God, when we sin, when we say, God, I don't, I don't need you, the end result is fear. It's fear. And some, some of us respond to that and say, hey, man, I have never told God. I never said that to God. I've never told God I don't need him. Okay. But have you ever said, I need you, God, except in this area of my life over here? This area, I know better than you do when it comes to this. I know better. I know better when it comes to my sexuality. I know better when it comes to my money, when it comes to generosity, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to family, when it comes to integrity. I, I know better than you do. I realize, you, I realize you're telling me there are certain things that are wrong and unhealthy and destructive, and there are other things that I should do that are good and right and healthy, but I know better than you in these areas. Don't you realize that's the same as saying, I don't need you? It's the same thing. And the more we do it, the more we move away from God, the more fear infiltrates and dominates our lives. And fear, Jesus said, is the antithesis of peace. He also wanted us to know that there are counterfeits to true peace. He explained, peace I give you, but he says, I don't give you as the world gives you. Translation, it is possible for you guys to experience uh, a kind of peace in this world, but, but it's a counterfeit to the real deal. You know, worldly peace is, is superficial. It's, it's more of a feeling that's, that's, uh, that's transient, whereas true peace is deeply rational and constant. For example, uh, denial. Denial can produce a false sense of peace. For as the old adage goes, ignorance is bliss. I heard recently about a doctor who was sharing with a friend how they, when they started medical school, uh, they got a little freaked out and overwhelmed when they started learning about all the deformities and the disease and the germs that are all out there in the world just waiting for us and how fragile our bodies are and how susceptible we are to these things and, and how much can go wrong. And when they were asked, well, how do you deal with that and stay sane? They said, well, by not thinking too much about it. By not thinking too much about it. I suggest that that's how a lot of people live their entire lives, by not thinking too much about it, by not thinking too much at all, not thinking too hard about things, about realities around them. And so they experience a certain degree of peace by avoiding significant questions like the meaning of life and death, the universe and where it's come from, God, who are we, where are we from, where are we going? They avoid these, these, these issues. They don't think they don't want to think. And so they wander through life. They kind of stumble over their way through life in denial. And at times, just actually just closing their eyes to truth and reality. But Christianity is about opening our eyes to what's real and what's true. About thinking about it, processing it. 
recognizing the, 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 the brokenness of our world, recognizing the, the reason for the brokenness is us, broken human beings. Understanding that God offers to heal these things, to rescue us from these things. You know, some people propose that being a Christian means you check your brain in at the door and you stop thinking. Mm-mm. It's the very opposite of that. You start thinking deeply, profoundly, comprehensively. You contemplate the universe, the intricacies and design of it, and the possibility of the designer. You contemplate the greatness, the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God and how this eternally existing, sovereign, all-powerful being created you. Unique. Special. How he cares for you. How he is gracious toward you, promising to love you forever. The world says, don't think about those things. Don't think about those philosophical, theological, don't think about all that stuff. Ignorance is bliss. Maybe so, but ultimately denial will be devastating. Circumstances can also produce a false sense of peace, specifically good ones, right? I mean, good circumstances, when things are going well, things are going the way we like. Think about it, um, a very attractive person asks you on a date. You find a job, you get a raise, your stocks go up. You have a baby, you ace a course, you graduate, you build a house, you go on vacation, you take a hike, you sip some wine, you read a good book, you get a clean bill of health from your doctor. Those are all good things that uh, periodically happen. And worldly peace is based on them, which means, which means it's, it's intermittent, it's fleeting, it's short-lived. Because we all know We all know that wonderful circumstances are but temporary respites from the hard things in life, the difficulties, the disappointments, the painful things. And if you get attached to the circumstances just when they go your way, to the good circumstances, you get attached to to, uh, uh, elections and you get attached to politics, you get attached to money or jobs or, or possessions or relationships or careers and those things become your source of peace. I'm telling you, that is problematic. That is problematic because that peace will not last. True peace is lasting. Biblical peace, the concept of peace is, is, is that it's constant. Why? Because it's not based on circumstances, good, bad, or in between. Instead, it's based on realities that never change. It's found in the one who never changes. Which is exactly why the psalmist is able to sing, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. There's our word, anxiety, agitation. Ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be terrified, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake in their surging, we will not fear. Translation. Whether delightful circumstances or horrible tragic ones, true peace is constant and lasting because God is constant and lasting. And then one more thing. It seems to me that personal moralism can at times produce a a false sense of peace. You know what I mean by that, right? I mean, um, doing noble things, decent things, 
following the rules as best we can, proving ourselves through our good works and our good efforts, our good attitudes, observing religious rites and practices, and if we can, if we can just do it all well enough, we will find moments in which we feel secure in ourselves. And we'll think, well, certainly, certainly God must be impressed and pleased with me and my good, moral, regulated religious life. And those peaceful moments last. They last until sin finds its way back into our lives, which it always does, because we're all so deeply flawed and broken. I mean, don't be naive. Peace founded on our individual moralism will always come crashing down around us. So here's the deal. There is peace the world offers. There is. Jesus said so. But it, it, it's superficial. It's fleeting. It's, it's counterfeit to true peace, which is rational and constant. You know, this, it's, a, it's a relentless tranquility and quietness of mind that's in spirit that transcends all circumstances and finds its basis in a right relationship with God. It's shalom. Now, here's the big question. How do you get it? How do you get this peace? And you know, in, in, in some respects, that's the wrong thing to ask because you don't really get it. It's something given to you. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Um, let's stop for a second and remember when Jesus made this statement. Where was he? He was in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. Who was he with? His closest friends. What, were, what was he doing? He's talking to them about going away, about sacrificing his life. He was talking to them about dying the very next day, literally within hours. And he says, peace I leave with you. In the midst of the chaos that that's going to create, <laughs> telling them these things, he says, my peace I leave you. In fact, some translators would like to render it this way. Peace I bequeath to you. Why? Because... This, is, um, this was last will and testament type language. And as most of us know, I'm assuming most of us know, things left in a will do not come to the heirs until the testator dies. Right? And therefore, unless you understand that shalom, that peace, is the legacy of Jesus' sacrifice, and it comes to you only through his death, and you receive it by faith in him, you'll never really know it. You'll never experience it. You won't. See, peace is not just subjective. It's objective. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death we all deserve to die. It's history. It happened. And through his perfect sacrifice, he fulfilled every requirement and paid every debt you and I owe before God. And therefore, if and when you put your faith in Jesus, his peace is bequeathed to you. It's part of, it's part of your inheritance. It's an objective spiritual reality, and as you grow and as you mature in your faith, it becomes more and more a subjective reality. Meaning what? Meaning you don't only know about this peace in your head, but you experience shalom in your heart. It actually changes the way you think and feel. It, it impacts the, the way you react to the world and how you respond to people and situations in which you find yourself. You know, your troubled fearfulness, even in the midst of confusion and hardship and disappointment, diminishes. And realize this, moving backwards even further in the text, 
right before Jesus makes this comment about peace, he promised something. He promised his friends that, that the Spirit of God himself would come and indwell his followers, and in moments of life when we, when we desperately need shalom, Jesus said, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Here's my Reiki summary. In troubled, anxious times, when fear begins to well up in us, God's Spirit will assure us of what's true and comfort us. Now, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't fully explain that to you. I don't. I can't tell you how God does what he does sometimes. I, don't have, I have no idea, but I do know this. I know that Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and he will remind us of everything he said, taught, and promised. Which begs the question, how much do I know? How much do you know about what Jesus said, taught, and promised? I mean, listen, many of us in this room have made a personal commitment of faith in Christ. And that's a personal decision. You know, you don't, you don't become a... Christian through birth. You don't, you don't become a Christian through osmosis by hanging out in, in church facilities or hanging out with other Christians. It, you have to make a decision. It's your decision to make. Do you believe in Jesus, what he said and taught, and that he is Savior or not? You have to make that decision. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you haven't made it, you need to. But if you have made it, then no, his peace is yours. It's an objective spiritual reality, but in order for us to grow in that peace, subjectively, experientially, we need to consistently expose ourselves to the Word of God and study the teachings of Jesus so that the Holy Spirit has something to work with, something to remind us of. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. When he was writing this letter to Christians in Rome, he writes to them, he's talking to them about suffering. He's talking to them about the hardships of life, the painful things of life. He's telling them these things. And then, and then he, when, as he's telling them, he begins to review scriptural truth. In fact, he says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then he begins to uh, proclaim all these spiritual realities. And he says, he says, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We are reconciled to God. We are at peace with God. We are, we are his children, sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom. He says we're loved, we're forgiven. And then he says, and in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Therefore, Paul says, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I.e., when the creator of the universe is your close personal friend, what is there to be afraid of? What is there to be afraid of? Nothing. If God accepts us for, for who we are in Christ, who can condemn us? No one. Paul says we're more than conquerors. And so what can separate us from the love of God in, that's in Christ Jesus? Anything I do, you do? Trouble, hardships, elections, nakedness, danger, famine? Nothing, nothing. Paul says, not even the dark powers of evil can take away what we have in Jesus. Be at rest. Be at peace. Do you get what he was doing? Uh, 
Paul was, he was taking objective spiritual truth and he was working it into his life for himself and for his listeners. Allowing God's spirit to comfort and to bring a renewed sense of shalom. So, so here's some practical advice. Today, this week, whenever your heart is troubled and anxious and fearful, go to the scriptures. And at the very least, at the very least, read what Jesus said, taught, and promised. Give the Holy Spirit something to remind you, something to work with. Allow him to comfort you through that. And and, and in addition, go to a Christian friend and and share them with your fears and let them remind you of, of objective truth. Give you something the Holy Spirit can work with in order to renew your sense of shalom. And here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God assured his people that this peace... He said, it's like, it's like a flowing river that never runs dry. It's always available for us and to us. So back to where we started all this. The holidays are rapidly approaching. They'll be here in a couple weeks. And um, the message of Christmas is what? Peace on earth. Peace on earth. And yet ironically, in what has become a season of cultural chaos and consumerism, to our own admission, many of us lack any true sense of it. So what about you? I mean, what do you want for the holidays? What do you want it to be like? What do you want to experience in and through them? Because here's my contention. If we hope to find any rest during the holidays, if we long to be truly present with and for those we love and to celebrate the season with genuine joy and happiness and actually give God, be present with God to give him an opportunity to use us to make a different, a spiritual difference in our world, we need shalom. Our minds and hearts need to be at rest. They need to be at peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, in this moment, we're, even now we're, our anxieties are revving up because we got to rush out, we got to run out, we got places to go, people to see, things to do, lunch to eat, all these things. And it's even hard for us just to rest in the moment, to be present in this moment. I pray you'd help us do that. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to, to remind us of what is objectively true, of all that Jesus said and all that he promised us and to comfort us that we might experience true shalom, this deep, tranquil, um, quiet sense of safety and it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. I pray in those moments that we would go to the scriptures and read about all that Jesus said and taught and promised, giving you, Holy Spirit, something to work with. That we'd use community, we'd use these times together to remind one another of what is right and true, giving the Spirit something to work with. We love you this morning, and we we long for a deeper, greater sense of peace and shalom that comes in Jesus and through Jesus.
thank you that no matter what goes on in this world, you are the God who never changes. May we rest in that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. That's some deep theology right there. God never changes, yet he changes everything. He changes us from the inside out. And um, man, I hope, I hope you know that this morning. I hope you get it. And, uh, and he, here's the thing. If, if, if you've never come to that place where you've made a commitment, a personal commitment to Jesus, believing him as Savior, you need to do it. That's what it means to be a, a Christian. Understand, we've been moving away from God for a long, long time as human beings. And the more we move away, the more fear we experience. And our culture is telling us, move away from God. Things will be better. It's not going to be better. It makes things worse. It's only moving back to the Creator, moving back to God who loves us, who offers to rescue us and heal our relationship, that we find hope and peace. And here's the deal. When your personal friends intimate friends with the creator of the universe, you've got nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. I hope you've made that kind of commitment in your life. And if maybe today you're willing to do it, just drop that down on a little tear off on the, on the, on the, uh, the bulletin and just drop it in a, a basket and let me know. Just let me know that you've done it um, so that I can pray for you. But um, until you do, there is no peace outside of Jesus. Not true peace. Why don't you stand with me, and I want to pray for us. Come back next week as we uh, continue uh, to prepare ourselves for the holidays. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe this week has just been a really stressful time for you, a lot of anxiety, a lot of disappointment, uh, you know, a lot of conflict, whatever. Some of our prayer team folks are going to be down in the front. They're willing to talk. They're willing to pray for you and take advantage of them and, um, and allow them to be used by the Holy Spirit to bring you comfort and peace as well. Okay, let me pray for us, and we're dismissed. And now, Lord, may you, the God of peace, who offers us shalom, a peace that goes beyond our understanding, may you be worshipped with our lives today. And may your Holy Spirit remind us of what is true and, uh, and comfort us. And as we go about our business this week, at home, at work, at school, wherever life takes us, may we bring this peace with us. And may our peace point people to Jesus. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.